Hello and welcome to Tech Weekly, a podcast by CityAM, where we go through some of the most important headlines in the world of tech, crypto, fintech and beyond. I'm Nassim Da Silva, here with CityAM's Charlie Conchi. Lily Russell-Jones is away for this week's episode, but not to worry. Charlie will be talking to Digital Minister Chris Philp about all things London and tech. They'll discuss London's prominent role on the global tech stage, what technology can do to help address the current cost of living crunch, and whether the online safety bill will impinge on free speech in the UK. So we're almost four months down now of what has been, I think it's fair to say, a very turbulent year, one of which all sectors have been kind of rocked by the war in Ukraine, soaring inflation, and one in which the, the halcyon days of 2021 do seem quite a way away now. We thought it would be good to stand back and reflect on where the kind of UK tech sector is amid all this turbulence. And I'm very pleased to say that joining us to do that is Digital Minister Chris Philp. So let, let's sort of kick off, first of all, with this kind of status of London and the UK more broadly as a sort of tech and fintech hub. We saw London particularly top all sorts of lists for funding last year, but it's undoubtedly become a bit more of a difficult place to do business in the past few months against that kind of backdrop of soaring inflation, kind of rumblings of Ukraine and so on. Are, are we at risk of losing that crown of tech hub at all, do you feel? No, I don't think so. Let's start off with taking a review of where we got to in uh, 2021 last year. Because the UK generally, and London as well, had an amazing year. In terms of private capital raising, we saw £29.4 billion raised privately by UK tech companies. That was comfortably the largest amount raised by any European country. In fact, it was double the second place country, which was Germany. They raised about 15. And it was more than three times the country which came third, uh, languishing back in third place, was France. So on about 9 billion. So an amazing year for private fundraising. When it came to public uh, fundraising on the IPO market last year, there were, uh, I think, 37 tech IPOs in London. And again, the London stock market was by far the most active and largest market for tech IPOs anywhere in Europe by a factor of two or three times. Um, and then if you think about uh, you creating new unicorns, new uh, companies that get to a billion dollar valuation, we've now got more unicorns than I think France, Germany, and Israel combined. Uh, and last year, we gave birth collectively, if you give birth to a unicorn, uh, to 29 new unicorns, new $1 billion companies. That's a new UK unicorn every 13 days. So an amazing 2021. Now, you asked, uh, Charlie, about this current year. Um, but I think uh, across the globe, um, there have been some headwinds this calendar year um, caused by Russia's uh, barbaric invasion of Ukraine, causing a few jitters on the public markets. That's been a global phenomenon. But actually, the London stock market has been more resilient than others. I mean, NASDAQ uh, over in New York or in the USA uh, it is down a fair bit, whereas the FTSE has been actually a lot more, if you look at it over the year so far, uh, it's been a lot more stable by comparison. You mentioned uh, inflation. Again, that is a global phenomenon. Inflation uh, here in the UK is about the same as the level of inflation in, in Europe, uh, in major European economies like France and Germany, and it's actually only a little bit lower than it is in, in the US. So this year, I think, is globally more difficult than 2021, um, but the UK is still uh, far ahead of its European competitors. But we're not going to be complacent. We want to go even further and stretch our lead in Europe and make sure we're also competing with 
um, the global leaders, China and the US as well. Because being a European leader is not enough. We want to go further. So we, if we look at first, I suppose, the, the private side of things there and, and kind of investment into private companies, I know there's potentially some important changes coming down the track, things like the pension charge cap being loosened slightly, changes to solvency two regulation, which could free up cash to kind of flow into tech. How much is government sort of pushing the industry to get on board of those and how, I suppose, significant might they be to the sector? We're pushing very hard. As you mentioned, the two remaining kind of regulatory changes to unlock in the flow of institutional capital into UK tech. Uh, so removing the uh, appropriate VC carried interest from the pension charge cap uh, is one element. And then the looking at solvent, which affects obviously pension funds and looking at solvency too, which obviously affects insurance companies. On the other hand, we think that is really important because uh, our view very strongly is that the UK uh, financial institutional landscape I'm thinking particularly about pension funds and uh, life funds, is massively under-allocated to tech compared to their European cousins. For example, uh, 68% of the capital which flows into US VC comes from US pension funds, big public sector systems like Calsters. The equivalent figure in the United Kingdom that compares to that 68% is only 12%. There is a huge under-allocation. Now, that has a number of consequences, um, the first is that the pension funds and, and other institutions are missing out on a returns opportunity, a medium term returns opportunity, um, which their American cousins are capturing because over uh, the medium term, over a five or 10 year period, uh, tech and in particular pre-IPO tech has significantly higher returns than other asset classes, bonds, quoted list, regular listed equities, uh, or real estate, whatever it may be. So they're missing a returns opportunity. I think it's also a missed opportunity for the UK ecosystem, because obviously if they invested in UK VC funds uh, more and they therefore got bigger, it would create more of a domestic ecosystem that sits around those. But I think thirdly, it's just a better allocation of capital for our economy as a whole. If you think of taking a whole uh, you know, pile of investment money, pension fund money, for example, if that's just put into existing real estate assets or into bonds of different kinds, um, in a sense, that, that is not necessarily, or, in, or into um, listed equities of large established companies, it's not really creating uh, a great deal of sort of new innovation. It's not really building anything new. Whereas money put into tech, it really is building new companies, building innovation, creating something which doesn't already exist, making the economy more productive. So it's a much, in my view, both from the point of view of the pension fund as an investor, but also from the point of view of our economy as a whole, it is a much better allocation of capital. And by the way, I'm not talking about putting like half the fund into it. I'm talking about allocations of like you know two percent, five percent of the AUM going into going into uh, pre-IPO tech through VCs. Um, it will improve their returns and it will turbocharge our economy. So besides trying to remove these regulatory impediments, things like uh, the pension fee cut, charge cap applying to carried interest, and looking at solvency too, which my colleagues in the Treasury and the regulators are doing, um, we also just want to talk to pension fund, the community, the investor community, and just try and um, persuade them to take a different view, to follow the example their North American cousins have been setting for, for many years. I suppose just picking up on that persuasion point there, I think, you know, they opened a consul, Treasury opened a consultation on changing these rules in January, and the, the response hasn't exactly been kind of universally glowing. Why is there that mindset, do you think, that, you know, it's a slight sort of aversion to tech from those institutional investors? I think there's a number of a number of factors. I mean, part of it is they do need to obviously develop um, a slightly different set of expertise because investing in VC funds is obviously a bit different, uh, or indeed investing in tech IPOs 
is a bit different to uh, more traditional forms of uh, both debt and equity investing. So they need to, I think, build build their skill sets a little bit more uh, in a way in a way that again their North American cousins have done already. I think secondly, we have in the UK typically had a very strong focus on uh, like dividend yield, uh, stability, predictability in the cash flows coming out of our investments. And that is obviously important, particularly where you've got uh, short dated liabilities. But I think um, there is also a place in any well-constructed portfolio um, for a growth component, growth growth um, investments, where you don't get necessarily profitability straight away. You don't get dividend flows for, the, for a period of two, three, five years. Um, and I think uh, that is a trade-off that I think we need to be better and more willing to make for a particular portion of the portfolio. And again, I'm talking about like 5% or something. I'm not talking about half of it. Um, and I think uh, that is, a, that is a, an allocation decision and a trade-off, growth versus dividends, as it were, potential versus stability, and that we have not, the community has not, the investment community uh, has not, in my view, embraced as much as it could have done. So I think there's some, a bit of recalibration um, is, is required there. And if you look at the way the NASDAQ has grown in the last 20 years, um, and some of these companies have grown, it is a phenomenal returns opportunity um, that we have essentially failed to fully capture in the UK investment community. And that's a shame. We can change it, though. Yes. So on that sort of NASDAQ comparison there, if we look at the, the public markets, I think, you know, something that's come under a lot of scrutiny in the past few months is the fact that the UK does seem to be losing a lot of these kind of most exciting tech businesses to New York and Arm being a sort of one example, perhaps looking towards New York to flow. Why is it that do you think that some some of Britain's best tech businesses are sort of snubbing London? Well, I wouldn't put it quite that way. And we had 37 tech IPOs in London last year. We had some uh, fantastic businesses listing here. For example, a Dark Trace, Wise, Oxford Nanopore, and many others besides them. So a lot of our companies are, are listing here. Some of the ones that went overseas um, were using SPAC. So, for example, Kazoo went to New York in a SPAC. Uh, I think uh, Benevolent AI went to Amsterdam in a SPAC. Uh, we've now changed our SPAC rules. I think it was late last year or um, autumn last year um, to uh, make them more flexible. We saw our first SPAC, Hambro Perks, list in December. I think there'll be more this year. So that um, source of, as it were, leakage from the UK to other markets, I don't think will happen so much in the future. Um, I think there is a lot of misconception about the London market. So I was talking to uh, Gordon Sangera, who's the chief executive and founder of Oxford Nanopore, who floated in London um, in October. I think it was early October last year with a market cap of around about um, four or five billion sterling. And he said he was advised by his investment bankers to list on NASDAQ, not on the London Stock Exchange. Um, he observed in passing that these banks get almost double the fees for a New York listing, so their advice may not be um, wholly impartial. Um, but he, he was advised not to do it, and he was given a bunch of reasons, uh, valuation, liquidity, depth of analyst coverage. Um, but he decided uh, to ignore the advice of those investment bankers and list in London anyway. And he said that he found that actually the concerns they had articulated didn't crystallize in reality, he got the valuation that he wanted. Uh, the liquidity in the aftermarket was, well, liquidity on, on issue, on IPO and in the aftermarket was uh, was fine. And although uh, analyst coverage probably is a bit better in the US at the moment, we hope that can change, um, it was good enough to facilitate his listing here. But I think experiences like his and that of Darktrace, who have had a really successful UK IPOs, shows it can be done. Um, Arm have said, you mentioned Arm, Arm have said publicly um, that they are looking at both options. And I think there is a really strong case um, for Arm to list uh, in, in London. Obviously, they're thinking about that, um, that themselves. So 
you know, we're addressing, we have addressed a number of the um, technical impediments to a London listing um, already. The free float requirement has dropped from 25% to 10%. You can do dual listings now, uh, uh, dual, dual share class rather, sorry, dual share classes. And I know that there's some consultation going on about um, forward-looking statements in prospectuses. So all of that technical work, and I mentioned the SPAC changes, all of that stuff has happened. Um, so I think there is, uh, there is no reason at all for a UK tech firm, or indeed any tech firm, uh, to list anywhere other than in London. And those case studies show how successful tech listings here uh, have been in the recent past. I suppose looking back at UK tech as well, and we're obviously in the midst of a, a kind of cost of living crunch and the soaring energy prices. What role do you think tech has to play in addressing some of those, those issues? I think it's got a massive role to play. Because if you think about what uh, tech innovation and the adoption of, of tech across the economy does, is it basically boosts productivity, right? That's what technological innovation does, which means that for the same amount of input, um, like number of hours works or however you want to measure it, um, or amount of capital deployed, you get more output. And if you get more output, that has a deflationary effect, right? If you use more output with the same input, it'll, it'll reduce um, aggregate prices. So I think tech has a fundamental role to play in addressing the cost of living challenges, addressing the UK's long-term uh, productivity challenges. It's going to help us make a transition from a, an economy that's relied on large-scale, low-skill, low-paid immigration to an economy that is more um, high-skilled, high-paid uh, in terms of its labour force and its immigration policy. It'll also, I think, drive economic growth. It'll drive prosperity in general. To do that, it needs two things. Firstly, we need to have uh, a really vibrant innovation economy, investing in university-led research. So we're increasing our university R&D budget from 15 billion a year up to, I think it's going to be 22 billion pounds a year over the next three or four years. We're going to, I think the chancellor is going to be looking at R&D tax credits and making them wider and more generous in the budget in the autumn. Um, we're looking to stimulate private sector investment. I've mentioned the, the work we're going to do with pension funds um, to get more investment into UK tech. And we're also looking to boost skills as well. So that's the innovation side. That innovation is critical, but we then need it to be adopted uh, through the economy as widely as possible. So there are steps we're taking just to encourage well, government and businesses, big and small, up and down the country to embrace tech, um, you know, even more than they're doing at the moment to increase their, their productivity. So I think so we, again, the Prime Minister shares this view. We see uh, tech innovation and adoption as, as the absolutely fundamental, foundational to our future uh, economic success. So we're, that's why we're so focused on it as a as a government. It is I mean, it's literally the future, the economic future of the country. And if we just sort of zoom out from UK tech uh, for a minute and sort of look at the big tech news of the week as well, which is obviously Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. And I know obviously the online safety bill is something that you've been working on closely. Is, is government concerned about the sort of implications of that acquisition and how it's kind of absolutist free speech to go and seems to sort of run counter to the bill? Uh, well, we're not concerned because, you know, we believe in free markets and if Elon Musk has put together his package uh, to purchase Twitter and the board have accepted it and shareholders consent, they're obviously, you know, um, free to free to do that. Um, so, you know, we have no no objection there. Um, in terms of uh, the comment you made about sort of the, the balance between free speech and protection, I mean, that really is exactly what the online harms, uh, the online safety bill is seeking to do. Uh, it is... Uh, it'll be legally binding, so it'll, it'll, regardless of what Elon Musk's personal views will be, uh, Twitter and other platforms like it, uh, Snapchat, Insta, Facebook, and everything else, uh, TikTok, will have to abide by 
the terms uh, in the online safety bill. Uh, we let it set out very clearly what we in government and hopefully endorsed by parliament uh, think about that. Uh, it's saying things like uh, content that is illegal should be prevented from being online. Content that is harmful to children should be uh, prevented as well. And that uh, a consistent and transparent approach is required to content that is potentially, that is legal, but potentially harmful uh, to adults. We're not, by the way, um, seeking to censor that or mandating that it must be taken down because that would be an affront to free speech. But we are requiring transparency and consistency in the way the largest platforms approach it. So uh, Elon Musk and Twitter will have to abide by that just the same as um, just the same as any other platform will. So that, it, it really, that's why the bill is necessary. So it's Parliament that makes these calls, not individuals who you know may be very successful and got every respect for Elon Musk. Um, but it should be Parliament that strikes that balance, not not powerful individuals. So it does sound like there would be a, you know a bit of a conflict there if there was you know this absolutist free speech. There is still going to be a need to police these platforms. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah. Ofcom are going to be the regulator that does that. I mean, if for example, an absolutist uh, interpretation of free speech included. Uh, the right to, to you know, uh, commit criminal offences, like, for example, inciting terrorism or inciting racial hatred. Parliament has said, to take those two examples, those things are illegal. You know, it's illegal to incite racial hatred. It's illegal to incite acts of terrorism. Right. So um, and that trumps consideration of free speech, right, because Parliament said it's illegal. Therefore, it shouldn't happen. Um, and anyone that does it is open to prosecution and the platform shouldn't carry that content. So uh, and the bill will, will enforce that and Ofcom will have powers to fine these large platforms up to 10% of their global revenue, um, which is typically in the region of 100% of their annual UK revenue, depending on how big the UK market is for them. So it's a really powerful enforcement power for Ofcom to make sure that they do comply. That was Digital Minister Chris Philp. And that's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed and we'll see you soon. 